This episode of the Disney Film Project is sponsored by TouringPlans.com. Head over to TouringPlans.com and use their tools to save yourself time and money when you are at Walt Disney World or Disneyland. You can use the Lines application on your mobile phone, use the Crowd Calendar to figure out which parks to hit which days, or use the Touring Plans to save time and money waiting in line. TouringPlans.com is the sponsor of this episode of the Disney Film Project. Welcome again, everybody, to the Disney Film Project Podcast, where we collect ourselves to discuss the films of the Walt Disney Company and everything that they have ever done, uh, and it's going to take us quite a while, so buckle up. I am Ryan Kilpatrick, the blogger, owner, proprietor over at DisneyFilmProject.com, where we do much the same thing, review the Disney films in order. Uh, Joining me this evening, we have our film buffs. You know them, you love them, you cherish them. Uh, first of all, we have Mr. Todd Perlmutter, who's the chief technical officer over at DisneyDrivenLife.com. He's also a blogger over at TouringPlans.com, and he's one heck of a fine fella. How are you tonight, Mr. Todd? Sanctuary! And if you had five seconds in the pool as to who was going to say it first... <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Todd Perlmutter has made you a winner. Yay! <laughs> Not that we encourage gambling, everyone. Uh, also joining us, and you hear her laughing in the background because, well, frankly, Todd and I are easy to laugh at, uh, is Miss Brianna Alessio, who is the attractions blogger over at DisneyDrivenLife.com, and she's also uh, pours her heart out on Adventures of Brie at Adventures of Brie. .blogspot.com. How are you, Bree? I'm doing fantastic this evening. How are you, Ryan? I am doing well as well. It's a nice, uh, nice time to be alive. Absolutely, I agree. There we go. Uh, the person who makes some sense of all this rambling, uh, and you can see her struggles with that if you follow her on Twitter at CherylP3 or go to about.me slash CherylP3 is Miss Cheryl Perlmutter. Uh, who is the the wife of Mr. Todd Perlmutter, and and for that she is a sainted woman. How are you, Miss Cheryl? Set them all on fire. <laughs> We're busting out the quotes early in the show today. Is what is what's happening. <laughs> we we burst it. Now we're quoting at the beginning. Yeah. That's right. Pretty soon we're going to tell you what the ending of the movie is, and then we're going to work our way back to the introduction. Oh, we should yep. show that in an episode. <laughs> because we're I like George Cheryl, Lucas like that. <laughs> I think Cheryl just died a little inside when she heard that idea. <laughs> no, what was really killed me this weekend is when t- we had to stop at the Great Floridian and ask them what movie they were showing. Because Todd's like, "Ooh, what movie are they showing?" I'm like, "Todd, we're not gonna stop and watch the movie." He goes, I still wonder what movie this show is. <laughs> doesn't yeah. matter if you're watching the movie, Todd, right? No, it doesn't matter. It's The feeling's all the same for me sometimes. There you go. All right, so today we are discussing The Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, the 1996 Disney film, uh, one of the animated features, the 34th in the animated line. 
uh, directed by Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale, the gentleman who brought us uh, the Oscar-nominated Beauty and the Beast, uh, produced by Don Hahn, with music by Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz. Um, fair to say, probably one of the lesser publicized or remembered films, I would say. Uh that hasn't hasn't been re-released or gotten a platinum edition or any of those sorts of things. I I uh, want to disagree with you there. You with, disagree all you want, I'm madam. Um, first of all, it did have an, it did have a show over at the Hollywood Studios or the whatever studios it was called before it was called the Hollywood Studios. <laughs> it was MGM. MGM. Yeah. Um, a good show, I might add. It had, And it also has a sequel that sounds just as good. So I, I actually think I have not seen this, the sequel, though. Well, well we're, I'm putting it on the list. Put it, I'm going to put it on the list for next year. For, same time, same channel. Keep 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 your tuners tuned, kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, same I, bat time, same bat <laughs> Yeah, because I really, I really, I read the synopsis of the sequel, and it sounds really great. So, yeah, that's gonna you know happen, guys. We'll share. Yeah, I'm. I, I will be going into that with trepidation. Just saying. Yeah, to be sure. <laughs> this was actually the first time I'd ever seen this film. It's the first time I've ever watched it, like, straight through and not, like, a little bit, like, ten minutes here and ten minutes there all out of sequence. Okay. So that must have been enjoyable. <laughs> I just never owned it before, and I never managed to catch it fully, and I never saw it in the theater. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Because this was one, uh, I have to say, I, this was during the time when uh, I was I was really getting into Disney animation, so uh, I, the first the first film that I had rushed out to see in the theater the animated films was Pocahontas and then of course this came right right after that and so I bought the soundtrack for this before the movie came out and I have to say I think it was on repeat on my CD player for about three straight months during that summer now for those of you who don't understand a CD player is a thing that you take and you put these little discs in it and it plays music kind of like how you play movies they go round and round, and it has a laser. <laughs> and unbelievably, yeah. I still use them. <laughs> I do, too. I just bought one the other day, as a matter of fact. But, yeah, the, the, the Hunchback actually did very, very well. Uh, I guess my point, Cheryl, was just that, like, you you haven't seen, like, Beauty and the Beast has been re-released, Little Mermaid, Lion King, you know, and it's been made a big deal of. But they haven't done that with Hunchback. Uh, I can understand why, considering that it is rather a dark film. It, it's Disney's darkest film. Yes. <laughs> really, really, I mean, in the animated movies, it's just the dark. most dark they've got, yeah. Yeah, and 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 not and, and like psychologically dark, right? Not like dark, like violent or anything, but. No. Oh yeah, I think it's violently dark. Yes, but yes. Yeah, so I I took some notes on this. So so no, you took notes, really? I know it's hard to believe. Well, it's a G-rated <laughs> film, right? Okay. Yes, it is. But but did you know that it's on Rotten Tomatoes' list of kids' movies that are inappropriate for children? 
I would agree with that. Is that I wrote down this quote by Janice Maslin, who is a very famous film critic for the New York Times. She, when, the, when the film came out, she wrote the following quote, which was, there's just no way to delight children with a feel-good version of this story. That, that, is, that is true. <laughs> However, I will point out to Janet Maslin and everyone else, uh, this movie made a lot of money. It really did. It's it's made uh it made three hundred twenty five million dollars at the box office, which again at the time uh was was less than the kinds of things that you would see from uh, Lion King or the other movies that I mentioned like Beauty and the Beast or those. So it was considered somewhat of a disappointment. But to be fair, the budget for the movie was a hundred million dollars, so they tripled their investment before they hit home video, which these days films try to. Uh, they try to make back their budget at the theaters, you know, blockbuster films, and make their money on home video and and in, in sequels. Uh, so this is, if this movie were released today and made that kind of money, it would be a huge success. Yeah. Well, it's important to note that back back then, not everything necessarily made it to video. Nowadays, everything goes to video. Yes. Very true. Yeah, and some movies are straight to video. I won't mention titles, something with the word buddies. So the novel, uh, which was released in the year 1831, was originally written by Victor Hugo. Okay, you'll note that Victor and Hugo are the names of two of the gargoyles, because they thought they were being clever. Um, The original title was not The Hunchback of Notre Dame. That's That's the English American title. Of the novel, it's not even like the British American, the British English title. It's the American English title. Uh, it actually was originally the Notre Dame de Paris, which means Our Lady of Paris. Okay, and it, it does refer directly to the Notre Dame Cathedral. Okay, it is a dark cartoon or animated feature because it is the book itself is a tragedy. Okay, like of the Shakespearean nature. Okay, oh, yes, very much so. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, the theme of the book is cruelty and social injustice. Okay, and um, you know it, it's important to note that you know there, there's, it's considered a tragedy because it's uh, it's highly Shakespearean. Because if you the book itself is all about the um, goodwill and that despite his goodwill and kindness towards Esmeralda, um, she never reciprocates his love for her, which is why it's reflected in the in the animated feature as well. Um, it's also important to note that Quasimodo is not the main character in the book. It's Esmeralda. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the book takes place in 1482. Okay. Uh, and Feast of Fools is a real thing that they celebrated back then. I don't. I presume they probably celebrate it in some form now. I just don't know what it is. April Fool's Day. Perhaps. I didn't even think about that, but it is. It's April 1482. Very good, Cheryl. I like that. April Fool's Day. Um, I I like it yeah that was a good point by Cheryl Um, so it's important to note that some of the differences between the books are like follows Um, in the book Froyo is the archdeacon whereas in the movie Froyo is the judge ruler of the town and the archdeacon is a separate character Um, and you know he has the same conflicts in the book that he has in the movie Um, he but it's the book differs in the fact that he actually orders Quasimodo to kidnap Esmeralda. Froyo, after ordering her capture by Quasimodo, then um, has Quasimodo blamed for the kidnapping and get captured. He punishes him just like in the 
in the movie um, in the that we're going to again discuss, and he um, she ends up saving his life for him. He falls for her. Um, she's then hanged, set to be hanged for the murder of Phobos. I'm just kind of jumping around a little bit. Um, Quasimodo rescues her. That's when he does declare sanctuary in the cathedral. This plan fails more so than it does in the movie. By in the in the movie, by the way, uh, Quasimodo ends up dying of a broken heart after he kills Froyo. Okay, because she is eventually because Esmeralda is killed. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, despite, like I said, despite the American title, Esmeralda's the protagonist. And it's important to note that Quasimodo in the book and in other movie adaptations, not quite so articulate because he's deaf from ringing the bells and he ha- really can't speak clearly. So I never actually read the the actual Hunchback book. Uh, I did read the Classics Illustrated version, though. Me too. Which, of course, yeah. Uh, and apparently <laughs> so did folks at Disney, because uh, that that's why they made the movie. Uh, they When uh, Wise and, and Trousdale, the directors, had were coming off of Beauty and the Beast, uh, somebody at Disney gave them the Classics Illustrated version and said that they thought there was a movie in, in Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, but, however, they they weren't all that thrilled, uh, and I guess you could probably see why, thinking of all the themes that Todd listed off uh, talking about the book and the things that are in this. It's not exactly a feel-good Disney movie uh, in the making when you look at the, all those themes. Yeah. I mean, they were also um, inspired. There's uh, Victor Hugo himself wrote an operatic version of the uh, book, and so a lot of the music concepts come from that as well. So there was a double inspiration there. And as mentioned, the music, fabulous. Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a really awesome album. Yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan. Listen to it repeatedly, like we said. Uh, and it, it, the songs are not probably among the most uh, most re, reheard of the Disney canon. I mean, like, there's not like Beauty and the Beast or Little Mermaid where you hear those songs over and over again in the parks or anything. Uh, but it did have a fantastic show over at the studios that used all the music. Uh, and I still still enjoy listening to the soundtrack uh, quite a bit, actually, these days. Uh, Alan Menken and Steven Schwartz do the music in this one, and uh, wow, it's great stuff. Great stuff. Yeah. I, I really enjoy the use of the Gregorian chants throughout. <laughs> well, yeah. who doesn't? Who doesn't enjoy yeah, a yeah. Gregorian chant? Yeah, I use I, a Gregorian chant on a regular basis. Uh, me too, wow. Absolutely. So what was everyone's favorite song from the soundtrack? I really like God Help the Ozcasts. I just... I enjoy that song. I enjoy the imagery of it. Yeah, yeah. It's a great I one. think it's, it's. Yeah, I think it's the prettiest in the in the in the in the as far as the, like the animation and the song going together. I like I like out there. That's my favorite. Out, out there is actually my favorite as well. And yours, Cheryl? I'm with Todd with um, Help the Outcasts. Wow. Yeah. It's a great one. All right. So like, well, two. That's Ooh. four people in two songs. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I I know that Court of Miracles is another favorite in this household. That one gets played a lot. So, oh, that's a good song. They're all it good. Is. I mean, they really are. Like you were saying, they're all good songs, right? They're all very strong. Very, despite that, there are a few that I find painful to listen to. Like when he's um, that the hel- the heavens light hellfire song, right? That yes. whole thing. I I find the beginning of that where Froyo is kind of leading. Quasimodo along, which I know we're not there yet, but I find that beginning to be a little disconcerting to me. 
Yeah. Yeah. Understandable. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. There's lots of things about uh, Prolo who that is uh, rather disturbing and disconcerting. Hmm. Yeah. There's there's actually two verses of God Help the Outcast. Did you know that? I, mean, I did not know that. Yeah, so uh, I guess Bette Midler does one on the album as well that's not in the movie. Yes. But it's uh, it's actually got different lyrics than the version that's in the movie. That's. Hmm. See, when I got to that on the CD, I just quit quit listening. Honestly, nothing against Bette Midler, but like it didn't. I never understood that why they do that on on Disney CDs. You know what I mean? Like they just throw they throw random people at the end singing the same song, and like I just want the part from the movie. That's. Yeah, That's I don't I care want. for that either. Yeah. See, I'm a sucker for that. Yeah, Cheryl and I like the. Really? Uh, the yeah, we like the Disney Mania CDs where they where they get the you know current Disney stars to sing the songs from the movies. Although some of them are quite, like some it. of them are lame. I I will say this last album we just bought. Some of those songs are lame, but Selena Gomez being singing Kaz sleep song. Oh my goodness. That could put you to sleep. <laughs> See, I don't. I don't mind the Disney Mania one. Yeah, I don't mind the Disney Mania ones where they're where it's all an album of that. It's when they throw it on the end of the soundtrack to the movie. See, I'm still that's, a sucker that's for that. Really? Yeah. 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 So, like we mentioned, this isn't the one. This isn't a movie that we've seen Disney re-release a lot. You know, they've had they've had the DVD. But it's not like the recent movies that they've released in 3D or, or any of that stuff to theaters. Although I think if you watch the opening sequence of it, uh, you could definitely re-release this movie in 3D, and it would be fan freaking tastic. I, I agree. I mean, much of the movie is computerized. I mean, much of it compared to prior movies. Because I think uh, Beauty and the Beast was the first movie they had experimented with computer animation. But right. th- this is the one first one where they actually used it to a significant degree, because, um, like I said, lots of the lots of computer animation, uh, much many of the backgrounds are just completely CGI in this movie. Um, the uh, bells in the Notre Dame towers are all completely rendered in 3D. Uh, the entire exterior of the Notre Dame Cathedral is 3D rendered. Um, the confetti tossed during the whole topsy-turvy song is all yeah. uh, completely digital, right? So that's mm. another thing that because it's digital, they just have to, they can just recreate it however they wanted to and add layers to it and whatnot. Mm. The stained glass windows in the cathedral are completely computer generated. Uh, wow. the, all the fire in the movie, especially the, uh, the stuff during the Hellfire song are all, is all completely CGI. Uh, and many of the exterior shots that pan around are done in using computers to create a multiplanar effect, much like the original multiplanar effect, which mm-hmm. is which is interesting because one of the things that that's been being done to movies that came out before Hunchback is that Pixar came up with this effect to strip the movie apart to recreate it in a planar effect, like especially with Beauty and the Beast and Lion King, they did this, so mm. they don't, wouldn't have to do this for this movie because it's already done. It's great. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it would look fantastic in 3D. I mean, just the the opening sequence, which uh, the movie opens with Clopin, the gypsy, uh, telling a group of kids about the story of the Hunchback, and it flashes between him and his puppets and the actual story that he's telling. 
which is a, it's a really cool dichotomy because it's it's Clopin with this cute, colorful puppet, you know, and his costume, his very multicolored costume, compared to the really dark, you know, costume of Claude Frollo and the soldiers, and as they are trying to uh, take three gypsies who are sneaking into Paris. And what ends up happening is the gypsy woman runs and Frollo runs after her. And that's the part where I thought, you know, when I first saw the movie in the theater, like, wow, this is this is a whole different level of animation because there's a sequence where he's chasing his horse underneath, um, I don't know what you'd call them, parapets or, you know, they're kind of stone pieces that stick out from the um, from the buildings and the woman is running away from him. But the camera tracks over those uh, stone pieces and you see the two of them underneath it. So it's very layered in a way that you just don't see in animation, right? You normally don't see an animated shot from above, first of all, but you never see something between yourself and the camera that's tracked at a high speed. And, uh, I mean, I, I still have not seen in a hand-drawn film something like that no, to this day. No, me, me neither. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. But we we get the the ultimate effect of where Frollo uh, catches her on the steps of Notre Dame and basically knocks her over. She strikes her head on the steps and and is killed. And when he retrieves the the baby that she was carrying, it's Quasimodo, and he's of course immediately being Claude Frollo, the villain of the piece, turned off by the by the deformity of the baby and is about to throw him down a well to kill him. Um, so you know, typical Disney fare, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, it happens in every movie, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so it, it's interesting, right, because is this, um, you know, so this is one of the orphan-themed movies, which is very common for Disney movies. They love the orphans as, mm-hmm. as, yep. the, as the heroes, which is probably why they were attracted to the story to begin with. Um, but what I, I find interesting is uh, the mother dies, but it's on screen, right? And very often it's off screen in Disney mm-hmm. movies. That's so, a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So again, that, that's play- I think what kind of lends to the to the darkness of it. Right. Well. Exactly. My my point yeah. exactly. It's it it sets the movie up for what it it, it is, which is that that darkest of the Disney movies, basically. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. I wanted to comment regarding the well and how 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 the well and they made the look like it was swirling up, kind of like it looked in Enchanted, where it was a was it was a portal. And I really thought they did that scene very, very well, I guess. Yeah, you're, talk- yeah. you're talking about when he's about to throw the baby in, right? Yes. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because they kind of, normally when you frame a shot, right, a character is at the center of the shot, right? But here what you've mm-hmm. got at the center is the well itself, and that kind of for the moment makes a well, the well a character. And so it stands right. out a little bit more. The scene at the well was what, said to me, wow, this is a very different Disney film because, as I had said, I haven't seen this before. So it was just kind of, that was the powerful scene because at that point I didn't know if the mother was dead or not. I didn't know if it was going to be one of those famous Disney fake deaths like Baloo in the Jungle Book, you know. And then I realized, wow, this actually is all happening on screen. They're showing this, you know. So like Todd was saying, that's it's kind of a sign. Yeah, it's 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 kind of crazy because I mean, and the other thing is like the animation, like I said in the first part of this is just it's it's crazily good because there's the whole sequence where he's about to where he's about to throw 
Quasimodo in the well, where the Archdeacon reaches out and says, stop, and we get the cross-cut of the lightning flash with the Archdeacon holding his hand out to say stop, and Clopin mimicking the action as he's telling the children. Yeah. And it's... That that just blew me away. I mean, the first time I saw it, and even I hadn't watched the movie probably in a few months, I just watching it again, it, it it's just stunning the way that they pulled that off. Not to give away a spoiler, but Ryan, what did you think of the fake death scene with Esmeralda then? I thought it was a uh, typical Disney <laughs> fake death. <laughs> at, the, at the peak of emotion and uh, ready to uh, fool you into thinking that, you know, everything is lost. Just like every other Disney fake death. <laughs> <laughs> yup. And it did it to me all because I, you know, hadn't seen it. So I was like, oh, yeah, she's dead. Oh, I start crying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and again, remember, in the actual book, she does die. So it's, you know, had you come in yeah. just for having read the book. Yeah. Or the classics illustrated in our case, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. True. <laughs> but that scene basically is, is where we get the premise of the film of, of why Quasimodo and Frollo are tied together. Because the Archdeacon says... You've murdered someone on the steps of Notre Dame, one of the holiest places in all of France, or in all of the world, frankly, and uh, you now have to uh, take care of this child to atone for that. Uh, so Frollo agrees to do so, but he has to leave the child in, in Notre Dame so that no one will ever see this deformed child. Uh, and that is how Quasimodo becomes the bell ringer of Notre Dame, because he lives up in the bell tower. And, well, what else are you going to do if you live in the bell tower but ring them bells? This is the point where they say that um, Quasimodo means half-formed, right? And, and he refers to right. it as a wicked name when he's retelling the story. And, uh, you know, the, the, tru the truth is that that really doesn't mean half-formed. It means almost the standard measure, which, mm -hmm. is, which is a – and what it is is it's, it's you're not quite the standard of a man. That's, that's what it actually means. So mm -hmm. it was a very well-picked word by Hugo when he named the character. Also, there's a connection here that's not really covered, but it's covered in the book that I read about. Because I didn't read it. I haven't actually, like I said, read the book. But uh, Esmeralda's mother actually dies the same way Quasimodo's mother dies in the movie, but in the book instead. And there's also discussion in the book that Quasimodo and Esmeralda were actually switched at birth. So it was actually Quasimodo who was you know, actually born um, a gypsy and left with Esmeralda's mother who wasn't a gypsy and vice, and vice versa. So that's how they ended up swapped. It was just an interesting concept. So, Oh, yeah. It is. That, Wild. So the, the, the scene quickly shifts to the kind of the title. We get the Hunchback of Notre Dame title and the, uh, the idea that Quasimodo has then developed into uh, a, a young man. And uh, he then gets to talk to the gargoyles uh, whose whose names are Victor, Hugo, and Laverne. Indeed, indeed. In case you couldn't get the uh, the reference with Victor and Hugo, yeah, I'm not sure where Laverne came from, but maybe from uh, Shirley. I'm not sure. No, the uh, Andrews sisters. Oh, interesting. Okay. I I don't know why there's, uh, but that's what it says in everything that I read. But there's no real explanation behind that. Just that that's what they were thinking at the time. Yeah, so th that's the thing, is we have the three gargoyles uh, that Quasimodo speaks to, uh, and the implication is, and, it, and they say so in the commentary on the DVD and all the materials, if you read about um, the, the, the making of the film, the implication is that the gargoyles are not actually real, that Quasimodo is speaking to them in his head because he's gone a little nuts living in the bell tower for 20 years by himself. 
Yeah. However, that that doesn't really jive with the rest of the movie. No. Uh, there's all sorts of interesting uh, contradictions to that, especially during the battles at the end. Right. Yeah, I mean, at the beginning, you could see it, right? You could say, you know, Quasimodo's freakishly strong. He can carry around three gargoyles and pretend that they're talking to him. But when the gargoyles are actually knocking things over and, you know, making faces at people, that's when you have a problem. Right. I mean, at at this scene that you're talking about, they actually blatantly make the point obvious that they're supposed to be that. Because when Freya walks into the room, they're no longer animated. They're statues again. And right. what's interesting there is that he actually points out this, exactly what they were trying to convey, and he goes, who were you talking to? Right. Yeah, and he makes a whole point of the fact that, you know, gargoyles can't talk. And, you know, that, like you said, points out the fact that, you know, hey, Quasimodo might not be all there. Yeah. Uh, but the, yeah. the big reason he's talking to the gargoyles is that they're setting up the Feast of Fools down in the courtyard in front of uh, Notre Dame. And, of course, Quasimodo, again, having been locked in the bell tower for many, many moons, uh, would like to go to the festival. But, of course, Frollo walks in and forbids him from doing so. What's also interesting is we learn clearly that Froyo is not being honest with Quasimodo at this point because we find out that he actually is lying to him. Because the story that he says in this scene is that Quasimodo was abandoned by his mother and he took him in by the good graces of his own heart and yada yada. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. not exactly what happened. No. No. No, no not quite. Uh, but, of course, Quasimodo is, is encouraged and egged on by the gargoyles and actually decides to, to cheat his way down to the Feast of Fools. But uh, meanwhile, uh, back at the Ponderosa, no. Uh, meanwhile, back across the city, uh, Phoebus has arrived, who is the new captain of the guard. And he's, he's portrayed by one Kevin Klein who uh, comes in and uh, sees immediately kind of the conflict that's going on in the city because he sees a gypsy being uh, sort of hassled by two soldiers and steps in to interrupt, and the soldiers not recognizing who he is kind of uh, get in his face until he finally shows them that, hey, he's the captain of the guard, and then he's escorted to Frollo. So immediately we understand that the, the, the conflict going on in the city is between Frollo and the gypsies, and he then explains that to Phoebus, uh, in a rather graphic and disturbing way by smashing a bunch of ants uh, as a metaphor mm. for the gypsies. And he's also shown that Phoebus's predecessor, who didn't do a good job, was being lashed in a cell as he's walked yes. along. Yes. It's, it's mm. implied that uh, Phoebus's predecessor was uh, not pleasing and therefore... Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I, I guess I didn't catch that, but okay. It is, that- yeah. He So it's, Frollo says something to the effect of, um, let's hope that you're better than your predecessor or something like that, and then all of a sudden you hear a whip and a man scream. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like nice. we said, folks, dark movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're uh we're introduced to his uh couple other characters at this point too. Uh the goat I do you even know how to pronounce the goat's name because I is it Jolly? Yes. Okay. Wow. 
Because it doesn't look like Jolly. I'm just saying. <laughs> when you write it yeah. out. <laughs> it's, it's a gypsy name. It's Jolly, yes. We're also introduced to Achilles. And I had to ask this question, especially to Bree. Does, does Achilles remind you of Maximus? Absolutely. Okay. They, they look so very, very similar. Yes, they, they do. Very, yes. yes. Gotta love Disney horses. Also the horse from Aladdin as well. Really? Oh, well, maybe. Maybe it's just how they animate horses. I, I, I think there needs to be a Disney horses brand. I mean, I'm just saying, Maximus, you got Achilles. My Disney pony. There we go. Yeah. Philippe, go. Philippe from Beauty and the Beast. Yes. Every horse Same. comes with a princess, and, and they have riding, they have riding outfits and stuff like that. Oh, <laughs> that yeah. Would be great. I would collect them all, folks. Collect them That's all. Right. We need to yep, pitch Disney. this idea. Yeah, Disney Consumer Products. Um, we've got this one, so you're going to have to come talk to us about uh, you know, some compensation. That's all I'm saying. That's right. It's happening. Just read your com. That's right. <laughs> Disney Ponies, it's a thing. It's going to happen. Uh, yep. I, I, yep. I, I won't, but Billy Hirsch will, just saying. <laughs> uh, there we go. <laughs> um. But the, but the last character that we're introduced to is Esmeralda, who is the gypsy that we mentioned earlier, played by Demi Moore. Uh, and she is sort of the uh, the temptress of the piece, shall we say? Hmm. That might be a good word for her, yeah. From one man's point of view. By every yes. man in this movie's point of view. I guess so. <laughs> yeah. I think I think every every main character in the movie falls in love with her, so... Oh, Except for Clopin. Yeah, true. Well, we don't know. We don't know what we don't know what's going on with Clopin. He didn't say, but could be. We don't know. Yeah. He's a crazy gypsy. You don't know what's going on in his head. And what's going in Jolly's head? I mean, what's go, what's going through that that right. little goat's head? Well, well, Jolly obviously loves her, right? He's hanging around with her all the time and and knocking Phoebus down whenever Phoebus gets in his way. Exactly. One of the statues hits on Jolly. Oh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Good that's point. Absolutely right. Yeah. But so we meet we meet Esmeralda. We have Phoebus. We have Quasimodo. We have Frollo. So we have the main four characters, and they all come together at the Feast of Fools, where Quasimodo is trying to sneak out of the castle. Phoebus is standing watch. Frollo is sort of just keeping order, and Esmeralda is is doing a dance. Uh, and it's her dance that sort of entrances all men uh, in in the film, um, which again, not what you would typically see in a Disney movie. Yeah. No. You you start to figure out what a prude Froyo actually is, though, right? Because he's yes. he denies it and he calls her a disgrace, and it's very it's very interesting scene because. There's, there's Phoebus going, yes, I'll definitely watch. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. He, he's definitely interested in what Esmeralda is uh, putting down there. But uh, Quasimodo, of course, is then uh, revealed. And in the scene, I think, is in all of the, the, the various Hunchback films. Uh, he is, you know, once, once the crowd figures him out, Clopin tries to help him and names him the King of Fools. However, uh, a couple of the soldiers decide that he's not worth, uh, worth their effort and, and start throwing things at him. He gets tied to the pillory and spun around and, and sort of mistreated until Esmeralda steps in to stop it. Of course, Frollo wasn't going to stop it because he thought Quasimodo deserved the lesson. Right, and, Fe- right. and Frollo stops Phoebus from stopping it. Yes. And that's, that's the other thing. <clears throat> yeah. 
Phoebus at this point we realize is really not not so willing to necessarily follow Froyo, but so you can kind of see the header of that you know coming down the line. But yes. um, this, like you said, this is the this is the famous one of the two famous scenes in the story, and because in in all the versions of the story, it's Esmeralda who rescues him from the pillory and to Froyo's anger. Yeah, and and it's it's that point where Esmeralda sort of becomes Froyo's foil in the uh, in the film because she defies him, and of course no one defies him, and uh, he orders Phoebus to go after her, and Phoebus sends all the soldiers after her, and she sort of leads them in this roundabout chase throughout the courtyard to uh, where she basically embarrasses them all, you know, knocks them over and does all sorts of things, including uh, spinning a helmet that lodges itself above Phoebus's head. Uh, in my favorite little clip where he says, what a woman. And you can tell that uh, he's smitten at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the uh, the old guy who gets released and then ends up in the stockade again. Yes. Oh, Quite. and when you see that little guy, does he remind you of anyone from a particular movie? Let's just say Tangled. A diaper guy? A yeah. A guy? This- Scary diaper guy. Absolutely, I think bit, he yeah. looks like the I think guy. I think there's yeah. a resemblance there. Uh, he, it's actually the same character that Jafar disguises himself as in Aladdin. <gasps> yes. Okay, I can see that. Uh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Little, so, little I mean, throwback there. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah. well, there are the, there's other references in the movie too earlier on because um, what happens is is during the scene where they're um, during um, what's the song out there when they're singing, and they're kind of doing yes. that sweeping over the city. There's that point where you see the well, which I presume is the same well where he was going to throw Quasimodo that we talked about earlier. Uh, you actually, for a second, you see Belle with her book walking past the fountain. Then you see uh, Pumba being carried by two guards, um, mm-hmm. and then you also see another guy shaking out carpet from Aladdin. That's awesome. Nice. Yeah, so it's really all there, folks. You can stop, and you'll see it. So Esmeralda escapes, and she manages to sneak inside Notre Dame, but Phoebus finds her, and, of course, he's been ordered to capture her, but he doesn't really want to. Uh, And they have a nice little sparring match there that kind of shows the chemistry between the two of them. Uh, And it's not until Frollo comes in that things sort of get ruined because he has to force her to claim sanctuary. Actually, he does it for her. Uh, and in case you're not familiar, if you're inside the church and you claim sanctuary, then you can't be harmed. You can't be arrested. You can't be dragged out in the street. Um, you can't even be called crude names, I don't think. I think that's that's part of the deal. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't get fruity pebbles either. Yes, but apparently Frollo doesn't, doesn't really respect the whole sanctuary thing because he wants to drag her out in the street, but the archdeacon stops him. And then he does probably the creepiest thing that's ever happened in a Disney movie. Mm. Which is? He grabs, he grabs Esmeralda's arm, twists it behind her, whispers to her about how he's going to kill her, and then he sniffs her hair in a rather stalkerish way. Yeah, no. Not, not good. Not good. No. Bad touch. Good. Bad touch. <laughs> Yes. Very, <laughs> yes! very much so. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but when they finally leave, of course, it's when uh, your favorite song occurs, Todd, which is the God Help the Outcast. Yeah. Uh, 
and it's just a beautiful song because the archdeacon sort of tips it off and because uh esmeralda says that you know there's no one out there who can help her and the, the archdeacon says well perhaps there's someone in here which touches off the song and it's just the beautiful imagery of all the people mixed in with the stained glass windows and, and everything just really makes for a, a very beautiful piece. There's a lot of uh, dark themes in this, and this is kind of sort of where they touch on the, the uh, social, some of the social injustices. Because what you've got is you've got what appear to be a bunch of well-dressed rich people walking by wishing for quote-unquote rich people things, which I don't really believe that these are things that necessarily rich people wish for. But they're... You know, because of their their dress and their style, they're they're not poor people, right? They, and they're going by wishing for fame and fortune, etc. And all she's singing about is that she wants nothing except help for her people. She doesn't even right. want anything for herself. She wants. She specifically says she wants nothing. So it's uh, I, that's another reason why I like the ju- the song so much. Is just the juxtaposition is just itself is beautiful. The lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's a very, very touching song. Uh, but she, when she finishes singing, it's a, uh, she, she manages to find her uh, Quasimodo, and they, they sort of start their relationship at that point because Quasimodo uh, exposes her to the, the carvings, or rather she stumbles upon them that he's made of the city and sort of shows her around the bell tower, and, and she starts to understand that you know, there's nothing wrong with him. He's, he's just part of the uh what frollo has done to the city yeah he he names the bells too i kind of i kind of like that he names them jacqueline yes. gabrielle guyame and big marie yes, yes. <laughs> i like big marie personally yes. that's my favorite yeah. <laughs> but but quasimodo finally uh, as, as they're talking you know says well you know the the palace may be surrounded or the, the cathedral may be surrounded, but I can get you out. You know, he knows that palace, that uh, cathedral better than anyone. And he manages to help her escape. Yeah. Um, she asked him to come with her, but instead he says, no, he has to stay. And she gives him a map to tell him where the court of miracles is in case he ever changes his mind. And it's in the form of a necklace and a puzzle. Yes. <laughs> cause, cause she says to him, when you wear this woven band, you hold the city in your hand. It's like, it's like magic spell. Yeah. It sounds like well, something out of he, Harry Potter. <laughs> well, he references her as a witch quite a few times, doesn't he? Well, I, that's that's the whole conversation they have that makes them friends, right? Is is she sees him for what she he is not the disfigurement, but who is in you know who is inside, which is like the whole point of the movie anyway, right? Right. And mm-hmm. she um and but he actually is more fearful of her because of what Froyo has drilled into him which is that you know gypsies are evil and they're nasty and they're you know they'll steal everything from you and they'll kill you when you turn your back and on and on and on and but what they come to realize and she makes the point is that neither of them are monsters or evil it's 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 froyo who who is and that's when you the movie starts to turn at this point is the when their friendship forms yes right right definitely yeah. Because it's it's when when Frollo finds out that she has escaped, it sort of turns him. Uh, what's the word? Insane. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he was already there. Yeah, but but he goes off the deep end because I mean he goes kind of rampaging through the city, sending Phoebus everywhere, trying to rouse gypsies, burn places, 
anything to find her because what happens is the the scene of uh, the, that you talked about, the Heaven's Light song uh, and, and the Hellfire song, where we get this juxtaposition between Quasimodo, who the fact that Esmeralda did not was not repulsed by him, uh, you know, has really excited him, and he's sort of falling in love with her. Right. And then there's uh, Frollo, whose intentions towards her are probably not quite as pure. Let's say, no. This yeah. is, in fact, Hellfire is considered probably, if not the darkest, certainly one of the darkest songs ever produced by Disney. Period. You know, it's it's got yeah, it's got so much ickiness in it. I don't know. I don't, I mean, there's really no other word that I can apply to it other than to say that. Um, yeah, it, it's it's very uncomfortable listening this, to it. This guy, like you said, Ryan, this is not—he's not—he's not just off the deep end. I mean, he is like out in space, diving off into the deep end of space. <laughs> yeah, he—he he, he just completely loses his mind. He thinks he's—he's he's so far above everyone else because he mentions being pure and free of sin, and he refers to Esmeralda as a temptress, and he. He sees her as in direct conflict, but at the same time as referring to her as a temptress, he's also declaring love for her. That's what that's what's going on in this song, and it's very disconcerting. It is. He's a very confused yeah. individual. Yeah. Um, I, I, an interesting uh, fact is that this scene had to be reanimated. Really? Yeah, the MPAA rejected this scene initially because they felt huh. that the... Um, that Esmeralda did not look clothed in the fire, so they rejected oh. it because of the because it would have re, it would have taken them out of a G rating. Oh, right, okay. right. So they had that's why said that's why you, you could very obviously see that the fire figure of Esmeralda has very flowing, flaming clothes. Okay. I can see that. Wow. Yeah. 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 It's uh, it's just well, if you have this gentleman singing about his um, temptation and frankly, lust for this woman, I can see why that would be a problem. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting because the motif, the fire motif, kind of you know stretches to the next part of the movie where um, he's basically set the entire city on fire. We have Quasimodo who's uh, hoping that Esmeralda will come back to him. Uh, and then we have, but before that we have uh, Esmeralda is, is witnesses uh, Phoebus stand up to Frollo because Frollo uh, sets a fire a, a villager's uh, house with them locked inside. I mean, that's how off the deep end he's gone. And Phoebus rushes in to rescue them and is subsequently attacked by the soldiers and dumped into the river where Esmeralda uh, rescues him since they are now uh, buddies, shall we say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's when we have Quasimodo on top of the bell tower and he's seeing the city afire and waiting for Esmeralda to come back. He's so smitten, he doesn't really know what to do. And we have the gargoyles sing to him this song, A Guy Like You, which is probably the silliest song in the whole movie. Most of the rest of the songs are actually quite serious, and this one's sort of the comic relief, I'd say. And I think they, I think they amped up the comic relief of the gargoyles, which is why the consistency, like we said earlier, of them possibly not being only a figment of his imagination doesn't work, because it feels like somebody went back to them and said, hey, we need a little more comedy in this really dark movie. Yeah, I, I think they were trying to make them seem like genie in this scene, almost. 
Yeah. I, that's kind of the feeling I got. There's there's one point where they actually stick um, a, a white wig on him because it's played by um, Hulse, who also played um, Amadeus. So they put yes. the Amadeus wig on him. Right. So, you know, it's... Uh, but, and so I, like you said, it's just there's a silly factor here that doesn't really line up very well with the rest of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's not bad. It's, and I actually really like the song. It's kind of funny. Yeah. But it's just, yeah, you, like you said, it doesn't fit well. And, of course, it comes crashing to the ground when Esmeralda walks through the door dragging Phoebus inside. And then we get the, the fun uh, Phoebus and Quasimodo dynamic, which, of course, they're both in love with Esmeralda. So that doesn't work out really well. They don't, they're not fast friends, let's say. No. No. <laughs> but, but he agrees. He promises to watch over him because he... Yes. Because of his loyalty to Esmeralda at this point. And it is like loyalty. He's kind of sort of transferring his, his pet-like qualities of, that he had with Froyo because he was kind of like a pet to Froyo. That's kind of sort of something that I find yeah. disturbing about the whole movie. And moving over to being a, um, you know, a person, really like yes. like that, you know, it's 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 like being born again almost for him. You know, the whole sh- that's the whole movie. He's coming to life. Yeah, absolutely. And Frollo sets him up though, because Frollo comes in and and kind of once he's gone on this rampage rampage rather, he sort of realizes that the only way that Esmeralda could have escaped is by Quasimodo helping, and he plants the seed with Quasimodo that uh, he is he, he knows where the Court of Miracles is and he's going to attack it at dawn. Yeah. Uh, and that, of course, Phoebus hears that because Quasimodo has hidden him and decide, and they both decide they have to go to the Court of Miracles after much verbal sparring, of course. Yeah. Well, he, this scene is kind of sort of like a final test, right? Because that's how he goes in. He, he's trying to give Quasimodo the opportunity to tell him the truth. And Quasimodo right. doesn't. And that's when he realizes that he is no longer really Quasimodo's master and that he, his opinion of Quasimodo changes at this point. He gets very, very rough with him. Yeah. Right. And there was a scene I thought was interesting, too. Um, right after Frollo left, when Phoebus came out from under the table, there was a scene where Quasimodo turned around and had his back t- to Phoebus, and he kind of was rubbing his left arm as Phoebus was doing the same thing. But to me, it seemed like they were trying to show the parallel between the two characters, the similarities. You know, God Help mm-hmm. the Outcast was kind of the theme, so I think that's mm-hmm. what they were trying to say since Phoebus betrayed Frollo. That's what it seemed like to me anyway. Right, well, like, it, like at the point in the movie when, um, when Esmeralda and Quasimodo are becoming friends and they're both perceived as monsters to each other, you have the same right. thing here is, like you said, you use the word outcast. Well, at this point in time, Phoebus is also an outcast. He's not a physical outcast, but he's... He's on. He's a fugitive. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, he he's literally been cast out. Yes. At this point. Yeah. You know? Right. So it's uh, and that's and you're right. The parallel them both, you know, being very similar in mannerisms. Even it's it's all yeah. played up right there in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Definitely. But the two of them, they, they use the map that Esmeralda had left him, solve the puzzle, and they go to the Court of Miracles, where there's a slight misunderstanding, uh, because Clopin greets them and treats them as spies while he's singing the Court of Miracles song, which is, again, why I kind of love the song, because it's this light, fluffy, dancing song about how they're going to hang them. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of also like um, how when the gypsies are all above ground, they dress very colorfully and 
almost like clowns, right? Like like this like what you see in like a Cirque du Soleil or at a parade or or something like that. But when they're underground, they're dressed more normal. Or the particular group of people who are trying to capture them are dressed like um, they're, they're dressed like skeletons, right? Because they're in a graveyard. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> It is kind of nuts. It is. Uh, for, fortunately, though, for for uh, for Quasimodo and Phoebus, uh, Esmeralda shows up and and says, "Please don't hang my friends, uh, especially <laughs> my new, you know, golden-haired boyfriend." Uh, but it's not in time, though, to stop uh, Mr. Mr. Frollo from from jumping in because, of course, he followed Quasimodo uh, and arrests all the gypsies and takes them out of the Court of Miracles. And, and and things are things are looking grim for our heroes, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, because at this point, too, Froyo tries to push the blame over to Quasimodo. Because again, like I said in the earlier scene, he's realized Quasimodo is no longer his servant. So he's trying to get rid of Quasimodo, and he so he tells all the gypsies, "It's all his fault. He led me here." Right. Right. Which is not exactly true. No. 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 Uh, so we we cut to the next morning where Frollo is trying to burn Esmeralda at the stake because, of course, he thinks that she is a witch who has enchanted him. Uh, and he basically offers her the choice of becoming his mistress or burning at the stake. And she chooses burning at the stake, which, frankly, I think I would, too. We call that a fate worse than death or death. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this is when we get the the other scene that is so iconic from the Hunchback films, which is Quasimodo breaks loose from the bell tower, swings down and grabs Esmeralda as she is passed out, and then swings back into the bell tower and hoists her over his head and yells sanctuary, basically yes. saying that you know she is now safe. Uh, and I think that's in every version of, of, of the films. We I don't think we've seen them all, but at least from what I can tell, that's in all the versions. Yeah, he, he uh, I haven't seen them all either. Um but it's yeah, it's very classic where he holds her up on his two hands and yells sanctuary just like that. It's it's literally the pose is the is classic too. I got a little tear in my eye at that point too. Yeah, it's 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 an underdog story. So when the underdog is on top, it you, you it is a little heart wrenching. Yeah. But but our our good buddy Frollo, never one to disappoint, is still crazed at this point and decides to attack Notre Dame itself. Uh, which then inspires Phoebus to lead the people against him. The people revolt. There's a big sort of a siege on Notre Dame itself. And uh, Frollo manages to get inside where the, the final battle, we mentioned the fake death because Quasimodo thinks Esmeralda is dead and he fights, fights Frollo off. Uh, Esmeralda awakens uh, and he manages to fight Frollo off. Frollo falls to his death, and, but Phoebus manages to catch Quasimodo. Uh, and everything ends up happy as the three of them uh, reunite and walk out the front door, Phoebus and Esmeralda holding hands, and Quasimodo is cheered by the crowd instead of uh, made fun of, so things sort of come full circle. Right, he, re- he really does become the king of the city almost, and not just not the king of fools like he was originally. So, right. right. And he doesn't die like he does in the book. So that's yes. Good. <laughs> yeah, ending. The, the, the ending in the book is much sadder because Esmeralda dies after being rescued by Quasimodo, dies anyway, and he dies of a broken heart. That's how the, that's how the actual story ends, but this is, you know, this is a nicer ending. Nothing yeah, against Victor Hugo, good. but I'm glad it ended like this. Yeah, yeah well, 
let's let's face it. He he wrote he turned it into an opera, right? And I mean, all all operas die with death, just like all Shakespeare ends with death as well. So yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And they're just uh, and this is a tragedy. So of the Shakespearean type, so it's you know it's not surprising yeah. that the actual thing and the actual book ended in death because that's what he was shooting for. I had a Star Wars connection. <gasps> Whoa! Wait a minute. Share. Share. Yeah, yeah, there is. So Quasimodo's mom is played by Mary Kay Bergman, okay, and she does a ton of characters in the uh, Phantom Menace video game. Oh. There you go. Many, many characters, if you've ever played. I have played it, so it's, there's a lot of them. I thought it was also interesting that, did you hear about what they did for the premiere of this movie? Because I don't remember ever seeing anything about this, but reading about it, I'm like, I was really upset that I missed all of this. I, I did read about it. I, I heard about it kind of at the time. I had not been to uh, New Orleans, which is where they held the big party uh, at this time. Yeah. But they they held this giant, you know, Mardi Gras style party in New Orleans to premiere the movie. Yeah. Uh, basically, what they did was they did the Feast of Fools, right? Which uh, as the party, so like a pre Mardi Gras Mardi Gras almost, right? Because that's what it kind of sort of reminds me of. And uh, it, they did it at the Superdrome, and they set up six giant screens, which were at the time uh, bigger than the movie screens that were in most movie theaters, because they hadn't started converting to those super big screens yet in a lot of theaters right. back then. It, like you said, it was it was preceded by a, a parade through the French Quarter, and it was it was a parade done by using floats that were either coming from Walt Disney World already or were then fed back into parades at Walt Disney World. And it was all Walt Disney World cast members in the parade. And the coolest thing that I, that I liked about it was that they had live musical numbers singing the songs during the credits. Oh, That's great. Cool. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, some other real-world things that are, I thought are interesting is that there is actually a small sculpture of Quasimodo at Notre Dame up near the gargoyles, that are the actual oh. real gargoyles, not Victor Hugo and Laverne, which are not on right. Dom. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Whoa. Cool Whoa. Yeah, cool You're telling me Disney made that up? Um, ah, I, don't, I don't know about that, Todd. That no, I thought, I thought Disney tried to convince us that Quasimodo made it up. Wow. Now we're meta right there. <laughs> Yes, we are. <laughs> I have a it has something to do with the time machine, though. It's yeah. got to work there somewhere. Uh, Victor Hugo actually lived in a town where there was a real-life humpback stonemason that was the basis of the character Quasimodo. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, uh, so I thought that was interesting. And um, also, uh, in typical Disney ma- nature, because Disney and Pixar and Go, they go to town on researching movies. They spent uh, several months at the Notre Dame Cathedral drawing sketches and taking photographs of it until they had every nook and cranny of it exactly perfect in their minds. You know, So they mapped the whole thing top to bottom. I believe it. Yeah. Well, that, it shows. I mean, the, the renderings of Notre Dame in the movie are kind of stunning. It, it, like I said, the, what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast is the um, the effects of the of the computer graphics enhancing the hand drawn art in this movie are fantastic. It, it, it's a good progression as opposed to when letting computer graphics necessarily take over completely kind of sort of loses it. 
you know, whereas I, except in a movie like Tangled, where I think they finally figured out how to bring it back. Yeah, I can so. see that. Yeah. All right. So that's the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Time for some ratings. Brianna Alessio, what do you say? Um, everything about this film I just love. I think the the plot line, everything, the way they adapted it to a Disney style is great. Um, it's just fantastic, and I'm going to give it a four. Fantastic. A four. All right. Cheryl Perlmutter, what do you think? I'm going to copy Bray, and I'm also going to give this a four. And like I said, I'm really excited for this sequel, for when we review the sequel, because it sounds just as good as this does. I'm scared. I'm always scared by the direct-to-video sequels. Yeah. But we'll see. Todd, what do you say? Uh, well, you know, it's a, it's a super strong story. Um, I really like it. I really enjoy it. Um, and I'm going to give it a four. I, you know, I've not... I've not actually read the original book. Um, like you, I've read the classics illustrated, among other things, and seen some of the movies. But beyond that, uh, it's just really good and really exciting. You know, a great story. I completely agree, which is why I will actually go a bit higher. I'm going to give it a five. That's right. You heard me. Woo-hoo! Um I like, like I mentioned, I like this uh, better than Beauty and the Beast. Um, I, I I prefer to watch Beauty and the Beast. It's an eminently more watchable movie, but it's kind of like comparing for me, not that they're that far apart in quality, but it's kind of like Citizen Kane and Star Wars, right? You know, Citizen Kane is probably a better movie, but I like Star Wars better. That's kind of the way I feel about these. Like Hunchback's a better movie. I like Beauty and the Beast better, but they're both five-star movies in my book. So there you go. Uh, if you disagree with me, you should let me know and let us know what you think of the program. Go to DisneyFilmProject.com and the show notes for this episode, and you can leave a comment there and let us know what you think. You can send us a tweet at at DizFilmProject, or you can go over to Facebook, Disney Film Project, and let us know what you think right there. Uh, until next week, keep in touch with us on all of our various and sundry blogging platforms. We have Mr. Todd Perlmutter and myself over at TouringPlans.com. You can check out uh, Bree at DisneyDrivenLife.com where she does those attraction blogs. You can also check out Adventures of Bree at AdventuresofBree.blogspot.com. Uh, check out Cheryl and the trouble she goes through to put this show together over at About.me slash CherylP3. All right, folks. So until next week, um, join the Feast of Fools. Offhand, I'd say it's the Court of Ankle Deep Sewage. Why is it whenever we meet, I end up bleeding? You're very clever to have found your hideaway. Unfortunately, you won't live to tell the tale. <laughs> <laughs>